Welcome back to the latest edition of the Audible presented by Trader Joe's. I am Bruce Feldman, joined as always by my colleague from the Athletic Stuart Mandel. Uh, we will be joined in a bit by another one of our colleagues, Nicole Auerbach, to talk about conference realignment, specifically through the lens of some Pac-12 news with what is going on with that conference. But uh, as we're taping this, Stu, it is Super Bowl Monday. Uh, I think you and I were both rooting for the Eagles, and mm-hmm. but not as hard as our producer, John Hayes, who looks very haggard as he joins us this morning <laughs> to talk about his misery. John, have you been drinking all night? Um, not all night, but there was a point where I stopped. But it's a, it's a hangover Monday for sure. Um, it, uh, I, I'm a Philly guy. Grew up there, season ticket holder my whole life. Went went to the games with my family growing up, so it's it's a disappointing result. Uh, I I just wanted to to come on the show and tell you guys how impressed I am with Jalen Hurts. I woke up this morning and I saw the final answer uh, of his press conference. A little kid asked him, you know, how how do you learn from an experience like this? And you know, Jalen Hurts, his answer, if he can handle it like that, shoot, like I, I certainly should be able to handle it. a loss in the Super Bowl as well. It's it's truly remarkable. Bruce, I read what you wrote about Jalen over the last couple of weeks, and I know you guys covered him very closely in college football. I did as well at SEC Network uh, when Jalen came to Alabama as a true freshman. I think he was the first ever true freshman to start for Alabama. And to see him play that well in, in a Super Bowl – after at this point, he's seven years of people doubting him, being able to throw the football, and it was it was an unbelievable performance. Ultimately, probably should have won the game and should have been the the Super Bowl MVP. But we, if we've seen anything in his career, he knows how to bounce back and continue to have success. Did you guys? Did, do you guys think it, that Jalen Hurts that this is sustainable in the NFL? That's that's my only concern. Is this a flash in the pan, or can he sustain? You mean this? because he runs so much? No, I just I, I mean because this is a breakout season for him, right? Mm-hmm. This is the the best we've ever seen Jalen Hurts play football. Like, is that the new norm, or or is this the outlying season? I absolutely think it's sustainable because you see how he approaches it. You see, he's always been really, really smart. We've seen him continue to evolve. I don't think it's you know his mechanics have cleaned up from talking to guys who've worked with him, but I think it's also, um, he's just, I think a really good fit because he is a problem for, for defenses because he's a strong runner still. But I also think, you know, you have a guy who's, whose confidence and work ethic is so good that I think he's going to continue to improve. I mean, he's only 24. That's the crazy thing. And, And John, what you said in terms of how he handled it and the, the story I wrote last week for The Athletic was just because I did have some time, you know, some one-on-one time with him when he was at OU. And he was just such a, and I said this on the podcast a few weeks ago, he's such a fascinating uh, person because he almost always seems to say the right thing, which is you keep waiting for him to slide into so many people. You know, we saw this from all the Georgia guys, you know, about like, yeah, everybody doubted us. They thought we were going to go four and eight. You know, even Kelsey after the after the won the Super Bowl was like nobody predicted this one. It was like no, almost everybody thought you were gonna you know, you know, be here or whatever. And Jalen Hurts' way is 
Um, he is textbook for what every coach hopes the players would, would operate with. He says it, he lives it. And so I think he's just scratching the surface. I mean, it helps that he's going to have, you know, Devontae's only going to get better. You know, AJ Brown is, you know, the play he made, you know, when he beat McDuffie for that deep ball for the touchdown was pretty remarkable. I, I think he will be going to many Super Bowls because I, I just think they are, they're built to, to, uh, to continue to grow. 304 passing yards, 70 rushing yards, and four total TDs in the Super Bowl. You know, I think that doesn't seem fluky to me in, in any way. And the other thing is, I'm I'm really struck by the connection he has with Devontae Smith. And I just can't help but wonder, well, first of all, Devontae Smith is clearly turning out to be like a generational receiver. He had that insane last Heisman season at Alabama. Like, nope, nobody does what he did. And now, you know, it has not taken him long to to look like high first round pick in the NFL. But Jalen Hurts and Devontae Smith spent two seasons at Alabama, you know, throwing Hurts throwing to him in practice every day. Like the connection began before they got to the NFL. And I wonder if that's part of why it just seems like they, you know, it's not quite, uh, uh, you know, maybe uh, the, the Joe Burrow to Jamar Chase connection, but it's it's up there. Um, but yeah, sorry about the loss. Sorry about the way it ended. Um, were you guys just one quick thing Were you guys in real time, I was a little confused about, it turned out to be perfect, but I was a little confused about what Andy Reed was doing, like why they were, um, like, I was like, he, he, like, how quickly did he realize after that, um, after the penalty, like we just need to take a knee and, and kick a field goal. I think they saw this. I was at uh, a friend's party who works in football, and this. And I'm not saying I told you so because I, I did not think everything was going to play the way it did. But they had, if they got one more first down, because they had two timeouts left. The, you know, it was right ahead of the two minute warning. I was like, they're not going to get the ball back because if they get a first down, they're basically going to ice them. I mean, you could kind of see this coming. The part that, and I'll be honest, I was rooting for the Eagles. I'm not like crushed, you know, that they didn't win. But I it's like kind of an anticlimactic way for it to fizzle out where you're like, oh, they're right. going to bleed the clock. It's going to set up for a field goal. This is not a college kid who's going to be kicking it. So it was just like, I get why they did it. And it's, it's smart. And it was really smart by... Um, Jet McKinnon to, to go down at the one, right? You could see, but it was just like, I think they had so much an awareness of this. If they get the first down, that's it. You know, like whatever's going to happen. And then you just think if you're the, you know, I thought about this after the fact, if you're the Eagles and you're in that position, it's almost like you not only going to let him score, you almost have to shove him into the end zone, you know, like to make They were going to sure. let him score and then he didn't score. Um, I'm saying, but like, you almost yeah. have to tell him if he's going in, get behind him and shove him into the end zone because, all right, you know, like him going down at the one, there was still some room, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if now when, when coaches say, let them score, make sure they score. If you can, it's almost I like thought that was a clinic in clock management. You see so many coaches screw up the end of the game. That was a clinic in clock management and McKinnon, Imagine how, you know, think about how selfless that was. He had a chance to score the winning touchdown in the Super Bowl and, and he didn't, and he let the field goal kicker have the glory. It's, it's pretty remarkable. It's smart football. And 
honestly, it reminds me uh, a couple years ago in the Iron Bowl when all Tank Bigsby had to do was get out of bounds and yeah. Bri- and and, Hartla- and 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 um and Brian stay Harson. in bounds. Yeah, and and Bri- yeah, sorry, stay in bounds and and Brian Harson beat Saban in Alabama um as the Auburn coach it's just crazy these moments in football you, the the game is a 60 minute game but there is these just quick decisions that have to be made and to to have all the decisions be the right one at the most important time in the Super Bowl that means the right players are there the right teams are there right because the execution was was absolutely phenomenal on both sides of the football right i mean like there's there's really no issues to talk about as far as bad decision making bad clock management i think you know, some Nick Sirianni specifically had had the guts to go for it on some some really big fourth down calls. It was just a high octane football game. It was it was so much fun, and, and hearing you guys talk about it is is helping me. You know, pull out of my it's cathartic dark morning. Yeah. It is how, cathartic. How, how are you in disbelief that that call was called when it was made on the holding, or do you like a even the fact that that he admitted it or he acknowledged it maybe softens the blow that he acknowledged it was a classy move, right? I think it was a perfect way to just kind of underscore that football is, is not just a one play game, right? There's a lot of other things that happened and Hey, I tugged the Jersey. It was a hold and I was hoping they, they wouldn't call it. That takes the sting out of it. I think it's just adding fuel to the fire. If Bradbury in the, in the post game locker room goes off and says, I didn't touch him. It's no hold. This is BS. Like, I think that, it doesn't help anybody. So yeah, I'll give him credit for admitting the the tiny little hold. But for me, when I watch a football game, I'm, I'm looking at it from such a schematic point of view. And my first thought after that penalty isn't, Oh, that's not a penalty. That wasn't a hold. Let me see the replay. It was like, game's over. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. Game's over. And that was the flag. And that's what I, that's what, where the disappointment came. Disappointment came from is the when you see that flag in that area, you know exactly what the call is. You know the game situation, the clock, and it ends that way. And it's just deflating for a classic Super Bowl to end on on a ticky-tack call that could that probably could have gone either way. But uh, and the, the one other thing I wanted to say about just perspective and, and hearing you guys talk about the Super Bowl, and even for the last couple of weeks and, and reading what you've written about these players, for me personally, I think – in in kind of living in this gray area between college football and NFL, I get so much perspective from college football writers who talk about NFL players compared to someone who's writing in the NFL, meeting one of these guys for the first times that comes into the locker room. And yes, they can learn about their history and they're covering them in the moment, in the moment. But I think college football writers specifically, someone like Joe Burrow, for example, Bruce, like, you know, nobody ha- is as as close to the real Joe Burrow story as as you are, even though, you know, there's a bunch of people in Cincinnati that do a great job covering Joe Burrow. But especially for the next month, and I think this, you know, applies to what we're about to see in the draft. Right. We're going to get how many people are going to start diving into tape in the over the next couple of months of all these college guys. I mean, that that's that's the life that that y'all are living. You know, we could we could probably draft a successful uh, team right now, just knowing from what we saw on the field, and that's what the Eagles did, by the way, right? What Howie Roseman gets all this credit for rebuilding the the squad. You know what he did? He said, "You know what? I'm going to go down to the SEC. I'm going to draft some Bama guys. I'm going to get some SEC talent on this roster. I'm going to draft the best guys at their positions in, in big time college football, and it paid off. And I think that a lot of GMs could take a take a lesson from that. Well, we're happy to have given you a little bit of a Monday morning therapy. 
Thank you. Uh, but we have we have denied our listeners about seven minutes here of talking realignment, which there's nothing the listeners care about more. So um, we decided to bring on our colleague, Nicole Auerbach. She was part of a story that I helped report on as well last week about just what the heck is going on with the Pac-12 looking at SMU and what's going on with this TV deal that that still hasn't happened. And at the time we wrote that, the OU Texas thing hadn't been official yet. That is obviously official now. So um, let's get to our guest. All right, guys, realignment is back in the news. People can't get enough of it. I'm relieved because we went like two days without any news. Um, Nicole and I were part of a team chasing down the latest last week. Let's start here. George Klyovkov goes and visits SMU. Normally expansion stuff like happens completely secret, you know, under the, under the radar. Nicole, from what you've gathered from talking to people, like how do you think this is really unusual? He just showed up at a, at a basketball game very publicly. Well, I think that it was supposed to be incognito. I don't think it was supposed to get out that he was going to go. Uh, I think that in most situations, uh, you know, George Klyovkov, yes, he's tall and we can recognize him, but I think, you know, he could probably walk into a campus and sit in a box somewhere or sit in in the stands and and people wouldn't know that that's what was happening. Um, I thought it was interesting that he still went through with it, even after people knew that he was going to go, because we have not really ever seen that to your point about just how public this was I, I was talking to some people who were definitely surprised that he was there and obviously photographed and and our Christianini spotted him and bought binoculars to spot him <laughs> and um it, it was it was certainly a spectacle and, and I think that you know they they took that to mean he's got to be feeling pretty good about SMU and, and maybe San Diego State too, but maybe you're getting closer to a finish line if you feel okay going that publicly about these things. Because this person pointed out to me, I mean, it's 2023. You can do all of this over the phone. You can do all of this over Zoom. There's no reason to actually go and do these things in person unless you do feel pretty good and, and maybe you are closer to a finish line. It, it certainly is too. I know we've had this conversation. It raises the question of, you know, what is the order of events here coming for the Pac-12? Are they going to add teams or add schools before they do the media deal to do the media deal, then add the schools. But it does feel like it's, it's moving towards something. If you're willing to be that public. I thought it was interesting. The Vanini photo, when we looked at it in Slack or when I did like, you know, it's not like it's like a high lens. It's whatever I'm guessing it's his iPhone. And I'm looking, I'm like, man, the guy on the right kind of looks like he either could be Rick George or Kevin Spacey there. And (laughs) Like if you guys hadn't said or people hadn't, I looked at the thread later and I was like, uh, okay, that I could see there was somebody else in there who looked very distinct to me, who's like kind of a Eric uh, Hardenberg, yeah, his, who's uh, a right hand yeah. man to him, and I'm like, wow, he actually looks exactly like that. But well, it turned out there was a Dallas Morning News photographer there who got like these crystal clear shots yep. of, of George. So my my favorite part was um, that he just wore a hat and that that was his disguise. I enjoyed that. Like, yep, that'll be the thing that stops people from realizing that the Pac-12 commissioner's here. Do we think, though, like, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like a lot of stuff ends up as posture. I'm not saying that this was this, but where it's like, hey, I'm doing the best I can. Because for a while, we all covered Larry Scott, his, his predecessor. And it just felt like Larry Scott was looking at the bright, shiny object in the distance too long. In this case... I mean, what do you, what do you guys think in terms of okay, what is the what are the cards he has dealt right now, 
And is he trying to do the best he can or how much is because because I, I do feel like his um, your mark from the Big 12 was hired with a similar profile in terms of like an outside the box guy. And he has come in with a splash. And if I was not even if I was a Big 12, player, I would just say he, I think he's done a terrific job. And if I was somebody in the Big 12, I'd be like, man, this has turned out to be a great hire with that as a backdrop. How do you assess how this is shaping up for Larry Scott's predecessor on his, you know, one of his first big things? His successor, you mean? Yes, I'm sorry. So it's it's definitely an interesting dynamic. And I think it's natural that people continue to compare these two because they did come across as they came in as outside the box hires. They came in in order to get the media deals done, right, to do the business stuff. Um, it's very interesting because I think that the big 12 and we hear this and you talk to people in the league, but you definitely get it from your mark directly and literally like day one of his job and, and all of the grenades he lobbied in George Klafkoff's direction in general, like they've been very aggressive throughout all of this. And it's such a 180 from obviously in that immediate aftermath of Texas and Oklahoma leaving where it felt very vulnerable and people weren't sure if the big 12 was going to survive. That's totally flipped on its head. And, and even going back to last year after USC, UCLA, I mean, the Big 12 was presenting this position of strength. They, they found out who they were going to add. They, they feel good about their new leader. They feel aggressive. And we certainly saw that already, even after they finish up the Texas and Oklahoma early exit. Immediately, the narrative is, okay, now they're going to be aggressive. Now they're going to go after the corner schools or the Arizona schools again. So they, they have had this perception of being on the aggressive. Um, and I think whenever I think about realignment, which is Stu's favorite topic, um, realignment is you want to be you don't want to be the last one on a sinking ship. Right. So you always want to be aggressive. We've seen so many schools make moves proactively just so that they're making a move and so that they're not like being abandoned at any phase of realignment. And so I think that's always very important when you think about like how people feel and how people are moving. I think the the Big 12 jumping the Pac-12 to get their media rights extension done, that fed into a lot of this. And that certainly led to some concerns throughout the Pac-12 about just the length of time that is, this deal is taking to get done. Um, but I, I do wonder if, you know, kind of showing up in the middle of Texas, in the middle of Big 12 country and being seen at SMU, being seen at a potential candidate school is a little bit of that. Like, we can be on the aggressive, too. We can make moves as well, because George Klafkoff has been much more in a bunker throughout the last, what, eight, nine months since USC UCLA than other commissioners have in the aftermath of some of these conference realignment moves. So it has been a little bit harder to get a sense of, you know, what he's working on, what his priorities are, but also just generally, is he going to be an aggressor on different things? So I, I think that's absolutely a fair read. And I think it's definitely emboldened people in the big 12 to feel like they are coming at this stuff from a position of power and that they think that they can, you know, poach other members or continue to grow, continue to be aggressive when the PAC 12 hasn't really had that sentiment coming out of the league. And you don't have that kind of, it's more defensive than it is um, offensive. And the thing about that, as I've been thinking about lately is if you go back to summer of 2021 after OU and Texas left, the Big 12 was the one everybody was worried about. Are they going to stick together? At that point, if the Pac-12 had wanted to, they could have taken any Big 12 school they wanted. I mean, they were all calling George. And 
they said, nah, we're good. We don't, we don't really need a Texas Tech or Oklahoma State or whatnot. And then a year later, USC and UCLA leave, and the narrative just completely flipped. And I still don't necessarily think Pac-12 schools are going to leave for the Big 12. I haven't heard anything to indicate they will. But, you know, I think there's been a couple ways that, the, that, that your mark did outflank Cleokoff. And one, as you said, Nicole, I remember at Pac-12 Media Days last summer, George was very confident in his TV deal because it was going to come up next. At that point, the Big Ten was almost done. And then it's going to be our turn. And your mark went and got ESPN and Fox to just open their thing up a year early. And he ends up getting his thing done before George gets his. You can look at that one of two ways, like, oh, the Big 12, you know, the Pac-12, um, now they're left scrambling. Uh, or, as one AD told me, they're frustrated that the Big 12 set the price, basically, as low as they did. It was good for the Big 12, but they thought they could have done a lot better than that. Um, and then the other thing is, so he's going to SMU. I don't mean to disparage SMU in any way. Perfectly good school, decent athletic program. But a year ago, if you if this was a scenario, you would have called up BYU, Houston, Cincinnati, maybe not UCF if you're the Pac-12. So like they're kind of left getting now the leftovers that the because the Big Twelve already got all the best group of five programs. It, it's it's a very interesting dynamic because like to your point, Bruce. Which things are George Klafkoff responsible for and which things are remnants of Larry Scott or remnants of their old media deal or the Pac-12 networks or circumstances, right? Like, can you control? You, yes, you should know that USC is unhappy. That was like an open secret in college sports, right? So, but okay, you were blindsided. We saw Bob Bullsby get blindsided by OU in Texas. But then, Stu, to your point, they added these other schools. He stabilized things that conference survived. Um, but, you know, again, opening up the media deal or allowing someone to leapfrog you in the, in the media deal path. Also, I mean, Stu, maybe you have a better sense of this. I know you were covering the UCLA region stuff, but it felt like there was a delay in media negotiations because maybe George was thinking that that might work that UCLA yeah, I, would be forced think, to stay? I think what Stu, when Stu brought up the, the we were both at covering Pac-12 media days, I definitely felt like a lot of people in leadership around here were reeling from that. And they were, uh, the, you know, like there was some big talk politically around that, um, around the state, certainly, you know, the way he framed it. And I feel like it was almost like they were ca caught looking backwards too much in some regards. So I remember talking one of the ADs who I think we all know and talked to a little bit was like talked about how, um, you know, really they, the Big Ten and everything was handled just like they were way more proactive to make things work. Whereas the Pac-12 was kind of got caught flat footed and then was like, it was just reeling from it kind of thing. And that's what it felt like to me, um, you know, to take yeah, and back so and, and that's the question of like, okay, so what can a commissioner do in that standpoint? And, you know, that's where like the relationships or a media deal that includes a grant of rights that locks people into something together. Um, all of those different pieces are like, you know, what, what can you do at that point? What is the level of communication? What are, what are the deals, right? Like we're going to talk about the impact of, of the commissioner once we know what this deal looks like, how much streaming is involved. 
where are Pac-12 games going to be streaming? What, what, what is the linear component of that deal? Like all of these pieces are going to, you know, come into his legacy. I think it was, it was so interesting because that, that USC UCLA news broke almost at Georgia's one year anniversary. And everyone had kind of done these lookbacks about like, people were very happy with the work that he had done. He had fought for the Pac-12. He knew the ADs, the football coaches. He was changing some scheduling pieces, right? He was looking at these things to try to put their football programs in a better position, which is what people felt that Larry Scott wasn't doing. And then this this bomb detonates, and it just feels, like you said, Bruce, that the Pac-12 has been reeling ever since. And so I'm very curious. If they end up, let's say they add San Diego State and SMU, and they get a media deal done, there is a grant of rights. So people sign, stay together. There's nowhere else for Oregon or Washington to go. Arizona schools stay in the Pac-12, and things stabilize. Do we feel like that is a good job? Do we feel like George has done what he was supposed to in that situation? The answer is probably yes, but it just feels like that finish line is still so far away, and they just haven't been proactive. They haven't been aggressive in the way that some of these other conferences have in this period of time where it's like eat or be eaten. I think it'll depend on what that TV deal looks like, because obviously we've heard uh, and it's been all over the map, right? Like John Oran, who is probably the most plugged in person there is on, on sports media rights. He did his, you know, end of the year predictions column last year. And he predicted that the PAC 12 would sell most of its rights to Amazon which maybe that gets them more money, but it makes them the only power five conference that you can't just flip on the TV and see on, on ESPN or, or Fox on, at a, you know, normal time. And so now that was speculation. We don't know what it's going to look like in the end, but I wanted to circle back. Uh, Nicole, I thought the biggest misstep in all of this is that, I mean, first of all, I think he's been from what I've gathered overly optimistic about their value. You want to call it naive, maybe. So when USC and UCLA were still in the mix, they thought they were going to be able to get 50 million a school, right? It's not big 10 money. It's pretty good. They leave. And the, the notion is like, well, that they just took 40% of their value with them. But he was telling people, no, 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 we're going to get 43, 45 million a school. Never seemed realistic. And in particular, he got like, I always thought that the board of regents stuff with UCLA was just political posturing. Everybody's going to make of it and then nothing's going to come of it. They seriously, like they put out an all out campaign. We are going to get UCLA to stay. They were feeding reporters numbers about how much, I mean, didn't George say on the record, uh, they're not actually going to make much more money by going to the big 10. Cause they're said that when we were, when we were there. I, yeah. He said that we were there, which was, also, which was absurd a letter. I think it was in a letter. I think it was written in a letter too. Right. And so like the, the numbers that he was throwing out there, how much more they were going to spend going on travel was, was so much more than what it, what it really is going to be. And then, so then this held up the media negotiations. And in fact, we know that he was presenting when he would do these presentations to, you know, potential network partners, he was showing them two scenarios with and without UCLA. It's like, really like move on. Like that's not going to happen. Um, so I think that's a, a source of frustration within the conference. Now, I do think, again, there's been no indication that any of those schools want to go to the Big 12. Because remember, in 2021, they could have invited any of those schools they wanted to. And they said, nah, we don't really want anything to do with them. But there's definitely concern that the final number isn't going to be that much more 
than what the Big 12 just got. And that'll be way short of what George was promising them at the beginning. Well, and, and uh, you know, my last point would just be that that's been the question all along over the last two years is if there was drastic difference in the value of the schools in the Big 12 and the schools in the Pac-12, we might have seen movement by now. But it has to be enough to be worth the move. And so that is one of the reasons that there have been people in the Pac-12 pretty confident, even since even in the immediate aftermath of USC, UCLA, that the conference would stay together, that people would stay as one because you know, it, they, they felt that people could commit to each other in the grant of rights. If, if Oregon and Washington or other schools don't have, you know, a, a call and an invite from the Big Ten or the SEC, um, it, it, again, it's it's you have to you have to evaluate what the difference in value is. And if the value is similar, why uproot everything? Why add different travel costs? Why do all of these things that are not in your traditional conference and your traditional region and, and your, um, you know, your footprint and all of these things. So it's going to be very interesting to see how this all shakes out. And again, what that final deal looks like if realignment happens if, or conference uh, expansion happens before the deal or after whatever order that might be. Um, I'm just very curious to see what that looks like. And then if it happens before, is that because they felt that they needed to have all of that inventory and the value spelled out before the media partner signed on right that what does that mean also about the relative strength of the conference like there's just so many questions it's a pretty fascinating dynamic because this is stretched on so long the bit the best thing that happened to george was kevin warren leaving the big 10 because i think any chance of them inviting oregon and washington anytime soon went went with him i think he was driving the bus on that nicole's got to go she's she does sirius xm radio you can catch her on there obviously follow her on twitter and read all her great work at The Athletic. Nicole, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Nicole. All right, thanks for having me, guys. Okay, Stu, back to the podcast in a second, but now a word from our sponsor, LinkedIn Talent Solutions. When you are hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. LinkedIn isn't just a jobs board. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within the first 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. LinkedIn knows that small businesses are wearing so many hats and might not have the time or resources to hire. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring. So, post your job for free at linkedin.com slash audible. That's linkedin.com slash audible to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. All right, Stu, we appreciate Nicole for joining us and for the insight. I think it's a fun discussion for perspective's sake. Um, as we alluded to, I think, earlier, 
um, late last week that the deal that most of us expected to happen, the Texas and OU are leaving a year early to go to the SEC. Um, I would ask you, Stu, like, what did you, as I said, most of us, I think, expected it. Texas had been telling, uh, I think, some of the recruits that this has been in the works for a while. What was your takeaway when this happened for, all right, now you have the two biggest brands in the Big 12. They're gone. It's turning the page a little sooner. Um, anything that, that you would like to add to it? Well, yeah, I mean, that was always the natural date for me to make that to me that they, because then it lines up with the ESPN taking over the, the SEC package that's on CBS right now. I thought, but there's more to it than that. And Andy Staples wrote about this in a column. This sport is going to change so much in 2024 because all these different things line up. Those schools will be in the SEC. USC and UCLA will be in the Pac-12. And the 12-team playoff starts that season. Those are three. If, if any of those, if any one of those three things was happening, right, in a season, it would be a big deal. All of those things happening in the same year. Um, I mean, it's just when we go to do our season previews and whatnot, it's going to look a lot different. Like basically this is your last season of, I would put it as like the status quo. And then the following season, 2024, it's not an entirely new sport, but it's going to be radically different. All right. So I'm going to ask you to put your hat on here, your prediction hat. We'll look at those four teams mm -hmm. and let's assume, and I think this is safe to assume, Caleb is going to be headed to the NFL at that point. He will not be at USC. Of those four teams, A, this is a two-part question. Do all, do you believe that they all have a better chance of, of reaching the playoff because it will be a 12-team playoff as opposed to a four-team playoff in their previous incarnation? In an easy, They will be in easier leagues. There is no Ohio State and Michigan in the Pac-12. There certainly is no Alabama and Georgia in the Big 12. So do you, do you think they're in a much better position? And then knowing what you think they're going to have, obviously transfer portal is going to dictate a lot, who do you think is going to be in the best position to actually make the playoff of those four teams? I mean, I think everybody in the country is in a better position to make the playoff with the 12 teams because you you have more margin for error. Um, you know, the four team is basically you can only lose once. Chances are you have to win your conference, though not always. Um, now, I think when we go to 12, you're going to see years where three, possibly four teams from the SEC and or Big Ten make it. Um, I, I mean... I would be surprised if you have a different answer than this, but USC to me would be in the be best position to make the playoff uh, for two reasons. One, they've got the right coach. I think we can agree on that. They don't play great defense. Maybe they will by then. Um, they will have a, a fantastic offense. Um, and then also we'll have a new quarterback though, a first time quarterback. We don't know who it's, it's going to be, but it's maybe. a Lincoln Riley quarterback. So I'm, I'm feel it's going to be Malachi Nelson, probably, right? Well, you can never predict that far ahead of time. Who knows? We, I mean, so, uh, he is a that would be my lead, my, my smallest concern on the team. Um, but also, talent wise, the only teams that are in their their sphere in that conference are Ohio State, Michigan, possibly Penn State. Whereas OU and Texas are going into a conference with Alabama, Georgia, LSU right on down the line. Right. So um, I don't know. I think 
I know the divisions are probably going away in the Big Ten, but if let's just say for the sake of argument, they would be in the Big Ten West, basically, you know, they're going to have a chance to be with the right coach, which I think they have now be in the mix for the playoff every year. Almost every year. I can't disagree with what you said. I mean, if Caleb had another year or couldn't leave, I'd be like, absolutely. Um, But I think the way you said it is true. I mean, when was the last time Lincoln Riley did not have exceptional quarterback play? I mean, I don't want to slight somebody at East Carolina, you know, but like maybe there was a year there where it wasn't like at this level. I guess the first half of Spencer Rattler's second season. Ooh, good answers. But then they, but then they benched him, and he benched him, brought in Caleb Williams, and it. But even then, Caleb did some great things, but also like in the Baylor game, he, you know, it was like, yeah, that's that's fair to say. I guess I wanted you to go into like how the like I'm I'm more curious by how this plays out for Texas and OU because for USC and and UCLA, I think I'm not saying it's going to be business as usual. But I, I just feel like it's almost like the Pac-12 was kind of transient to begin with, even though it's been there forever. Whereas OU and o, OU and Texas are going into such a meat grinder um, where I don't know when, if ever, they've ever probably had the like the seventh most talented roster. You know, well with Texas, it's like it's been so long since they were a factor even in the big 12 that it's hard to see them doing well right away in the sec. And I, and, and then Oklahoma, I feel like the equation for Oklahoma changed a little just because Brent Venables had such a bad first season. You know, if he had gone 10 and three, even we would probably be looking at them a little bit differently. In other words, we feel pretty confident USC has the right coach to take them into the new conference. I don't know that we feel, I definitely don't feel confident about Sark. I'm not going to rule out Brent Venables after one season, but it was definitely a a, a bad first impression. But yeah, I mean, you could make, I I know why they're doing it. You know, if you have a chance to join, which is what is basically the NFL of college football, you got to go, but it is not going to be, you know, OU fans who have become conditioned under Stoops and Lincoln Riley that every year or every other year, we're going to win the big 12. That's just not going to happen in the SEC. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I am after after two years of Sark and one year of Venables, like, I don't know how confident I am that it's going to, you know, the bar is going to be so much higher. Now, look, can they be one of the top four in the SEC? Because I think if you're one of the top four, like to, uh, to your point a few minutes ago, you have a really good chance of making the playoff. But I don't know that, like, Except for 2018, um, you have to go back more than a decade when the the Texas team was anything close to like what would have been even in consideration to be one of the top four teams in the SEC. Correct. I think now they are they are going to have Arch Manning when they go into the SEC. We'll see if he lives up to the hype. If he does, uh, that could that could change things a little bit. But I think. You know, Texas's problems have gone beyond quarterback for a while now. So we're going to need to see some pretty dramatic improvement to have much confidence in them. All right, last thing. We're going to get to the mailbag. Last thing, there have been some significant uh, – the coordinator carousel continues. There's been some significant moves involving the the ripple effect of Alabama, Notre Dame, Miami. Why don't you give us your thoughts? 
Yeah, I think it's interesting. Alabama obviously clearing the decks on the coordinators. Um, they hired one coordinator from from Notre Dame who is on the upside of his career, young Tommy Reese. And the defensive coordinator was is a guy who knows the SEC extremely well, Kevin Steele. Kevin Steele had a really kind of a, a dud of a first year at Miami. Um, they got a lot worse on defense. And Tommy Reese is an interesting one because I feel like a lot of Notre Dame fans have great reverence for him. I think he did a pretty good job as a play caller, and it didn't feel like he had that much to work with, right? He had a back, he had an inexperience, and then he had a backup quarterback. He had a really limited receiver room, and their running back room was kind of their most talented guy was injured before the season, and they still were pretty good. Um, I would ask you, you know, we've talked a little bit about Tommy Reese, and I know I think you asked Matt Fortune and Pete Sampson at one point, like, what is it? You know, because it's not like he's putting up the numbers that like air raid guys put up or anything close to that. Um, your take on the two hires first that Alabama has made? Probably a little more underwhelming than than most Nick Saban hires usually. Um, now, I do think Kevin Steele, you know, he was doing a really good job at Auburn uh, when he was there. And I think the key there is, you know, he's worked for Saban before. That's an important thing for him. Uh, he's going to be running the Alabama defense. Tommy Reese is a little more puzzling. I'm not going to lie. I, I didn't see what was so great about those Notre Dame offenses. Now they didn't necessarily have a, uh, they certainly didn't have like a Bryce Young type quarterback any of those years, um, but they, they weren't without talent. But as I said to uh, in the mailbag last week, you know, Nick, I'm not going to be one to question Nick Saban's who he decides to hire. Like, he didn't just hire Tommy Reese blind. Tommy Reese would have had to go through a pretty extensive interview process. He would have had to draw plays up on the board, uh, show how he teaches them to the players. So I'm inclined to think whatever Saban sees in him is probably uh, more valid than, than what I may, might see in Tommy Reese. I'm inclined to agree with that too. Yeah. He, he um, hasn't forgotten how to, how to hire a good staff. The, what's interesting is there is a lot of, crossover here um in in these three jobs as i said the, between alabama hiring off those two places um so miami loses kevin Steele. they hire lance gidry my uh, our colleague manny navarro and i did a pretty deep dive into they actually had the number one third down defense in college football and it was like the best one in six years and so we kind of got into what gidry was hired away from marshall by Tulane, and then Miami hired him away. And to me, after talking to a lot of people in the Sun Belt, I feel like that might actually be an upgrade considering they were second to last in the ACC in defense under Steele. Um, but they have a coordinator job on the offensive side. And so you have some of this overlap. We talked about Mario Cristobal's process and the hiring. But one of the guys he looked at very closely last year was Andy Lud Ludwig from Utah, who is quietly done a really good job out there and when i say quietly i don't feel like a lot of people buzz about his name maybe part of it's because he's over 50 and some of it i just feel like you know people maybe don't give the attention to like what goes on at utah they just know kyle whittingham's a really terrific coach which he is um but ludwig is definitely a strong candidate for the notre dame offense coordinator job now um and then there's like some other names that you just like there's a lot of different guys, Sean Lewis, who left Kent State and Dion hired him. You know, he was a, 
a candidate at a couple of places as well. I just think it's like a case where a lot of um, the same names are being being kind of parsed and, and to see where they go. I think the reason that Andy Ludwig is not necessarily a big name is he's been kind of a journeyman. And a lot of those stops, he I mean, I, I'm I'm old enough to remember when he was kind of one of these OCs that people criticized. Um, you know, he was at Cal at one point. He was at Wisconsin for several years. And before he went back to Utah, he was at Vanderbilt under Derek Mason. But when he's been at Utah, he was the OC when they had the undefeated season in 2008 under Kyle Whittingham. And since he's been back, obviously, 2019, three Pac-12 title games in four years, back-to-back Pac-12 championships. So that, I think, is why he's not – he doesn't have that that huge, you know, rising star profile to him. But – Given, I mean, I think you would agree, like Notre Dame is not going to be a air raid team. Like their identity as kind of a physical running team is actually pretty similar to Utah's. I definitely agree. So that makes a lot of sense to me. It does. And in the last four years, I think twice they were in the top two in the Pac-12, which is a good offensive conference um, in yards per play. And I think given a lot of the turnover they've had, I think that's not insignificant so um we'll see which which direction you know we think both of these hires will be made within you know at those two schools within the next few days all right let's get to the mailbag as always send your question to the audible pod at gmail.com let's talk a little bit about more about offensive coordinators and and things carrie in lawrenceville georgia bruce and Stu, how do you think the following scenario plays out Nine and three, Iowa trails Texas A&M by five in the Outback Bowl with five seconds left in the game. It's Iowa's ball, fourth and goal from the A&M nine-yard line. Iowa needs three points to ensure they average 25 (laughs) points a game for the season. Does Kirk Ferentz try to win the game, or does he kick the field goal to guarantee Brian Ferentz, his son's new contract, is extended? What's more important to him, a chance for a 10-win season or making sure his team averages 25 points a game to save his son's job? Okay, for people who it's don't a, know what yeah. this means, fill in the blanks, still. Well, I'm thinking to myself, didn't we already talk about this on the podcast? But I guess we didn't because it came down after last Monday that you know Brian Ferentz, who who has been such a polarizing figure at Iowa because his offenses are so terrible, but his dad won't fire him. They come out with this this cockamamie contract where, if as long as his team I don't think I've ever used that. Experience that expression on the audible probably not as long as his team averages 25 points per game was uh which would have been 85th in the country last year and the team wins seven games he will get a hundred twelve thousand dollar bonus and his contract will be extended for another two years that's the bar if he doesn't meet those though it does say that his contract would be terminated in 2024 and so now you can already see where this is headed this is this question is a great example of it that if, unless they come out and are just dominant, right? Cade McNamara wins the Heisman or something. Um, this this storyline is going to hover over them all year. Every week, people are going to be tracking how close is he to 25 points a game. And if it came down to this, I mean, I have to think Kirk Ferentz would try to win the game. Um, but, but I could see during the season, I think during the season, every time they have a fourth and one or a fourth and two, People are going to be watching to see if Kirk punts like he usually would in the past or goes for it because he knows he needs to score more points. Um, now, that contract terminates. That doesn't say like, and he's 
and and there's no chance we would negotiate a new one. Like, let's see, in this scenario, they are nine and three and in the Outback Bowl. Uh, yeah, I mean that that will be considered a decent season. If it's right on the cusp like that, I could see them being like, well, we, as it states, the com- contract is terminated. However, we've come up with a new contract. Like, if you're an Iowa fan who wants him gone, you need them to fall considerably short of 25 points per game. You know what's interesting? So he became the offense coordinator, actually. Do you know when Brian Ferentz took over as EOC? Uh, no, I don't remember the exact year, no. Uh, it says, according to, and I'm looking at this from Wikipedia, but it says 2017, which is a long time ago. What's interesting is the year before that, they averaged 24.9 points a game. Um, and so I, I don't I know they haven't hit it the last two years. But it's not no, like they it, never do. He's had no, years where they you go back to, to the pandemic year twenty twenty. Do you know when they what where Iowa ranked in scoring in the Big Ten? In twenty twenty, yeah, uh, fourth, second. They were one of really? only two teams to average over thirty points a game. Gosh, now remember that they did not have. You know, this is a strictly all Big Ten schedule, and it was kind of a screwy year. But yeah. That should have theoretically made it harder uh, for to, to drive up the the points per game, which was thirty one point eight. Uh, let's see who was on that team. Quarterback was Nate Stanley. No, Spencer Petrus. Yeah, Our good friend Spencer Petrus. Tyler Goodson was a really good running back. Um, is this a Noah Fant team by any chance? Probably not. I think he would have been gone by then. Um, you know, he was, uh, Laporta was there, and he was already a pretty good player. Amir Smith Marsmet was. They had they had some speed outside because they had Smith Marset and Brandon Smith. Look, I mean, again, it's not like they are always um, as bad as they've been the last couple of years, but they have not reached twenty five points per game the last two years. In twenty nineteen, it was twenty five point eight. Twenty eighteen, thirty one point two. Now that was a Noah fan team. That was Nathan Stanley. That was TJ Hawkinson and Noah Fant. So, you know, look, I mean, the thing about Iowa is I think we all agree Cade McNamara is a pretty big upgrade at quarterback. He led Michigan. I know he ended up losing the job this year, but he did lead Michigan to a playoff or a Big Ten title on a playoff berth the year before. So that's a good sign. Eric All, the tight end transfer from Michigan, he was hurt last year. He's pretty good. So they have upgraded their talent. Um, but I, I just think the whole thing is, is such a farce. I mean, the nepotism is so blatant and so brazen that they've come up with this scheme so that, you know what, if he does fall short again, they can just say, well, we didn't have to fire him. It was in the contract. Um, just one other thing on that. Would you have felt not that, you know, you bring up nepotism, but like, would you have felt differently if, cause 28, 25 points a game is good enough usually for like like eighth in the league or so. Um, if they set the number much higher, meaning if they set the number at 28 points a game. Okay, you're measuring it by Big Ten. I only really looked at it at, at national. So 28 points a game last year would have been 68th in the country. No, I think if, if you're going to get a bonus... It but should, it would have been six in the Big Ten. 
you should be, I don't have a magic number, but you should strive to be uh, high in the national rankings. Not be like, great job, you got us to 68th. Here's a bonus. Um, 30 probably would be the number that I would say. 30? Uh, yeah. Because this is 2023 college football. Even 30 is 54th nationally. You, you know, you're a that, Big I, Ten program that you're, you're yeah, a Big look, Ten program with a lot of resources. Why are you settling for like okay, 85th last year would have put you behind Rice. I know, but this, I think you're looking at State. the metric of these other. I I think it's fair to compare it to what you're going up against defensively. Like the Big Ten, you have worse weather you're dealing with. I mean, I'm not giving them a huge pass on this, but like remember the game. Oh, and maybe this is an outlier, but it still factors in where Ohio State played at your alma mater and it was like a miserable weather game. Like, you don't have that in some of these other places. Well, I would say at, at the very least, it should be you have to finish in the top half. In fact, that would have helped putting this specific number as part of what's going to make it so um, such a season long storyline. Yeah. If you had just said finish in the top half, we don't know what that number is going to end up being. It would still be bizarre, but it wouldn't be quite that specific. Um, moving on to Brian Bartholomew, Bruce and Stewart. He's in Madison, Wisconsin. We often talk about the best head coaching hires of the offseason, but I was curious as to who you think was the best assistant coaching hire of the offseason. As a Wisconsin fan, I obviously am biased, and I think it's the Badgers hiring OC Phil Longo. But I was curious as to your guys' opinion on some of the assistant hires so far. Um, you know, Longo has a really good track record of moving the football. And that is, I think it's a good, to me, it's a good fit. If you want to rip the bandaid off and say, Hey, we're not getting it done. We're, we're just kind of hit a ceiling at Wisconsin. I think for what, um, Luke Fickle is going to bring, I think it's a good fit though. You know, he tried to hire Longo like four or five years ago, I think, um, when he was at Cincinnati. So I mean, clearly he's familiar with them. I think that's a really, really good hire. Um, I'm trying to think of other hires that I was like, ooh, that one is like kind of a wow fit. Um, well, to me, the hire of the offseason is Clemson getting Garrett Riley. Um, because, and, and part of that is just, like Clemson should be able to go out and get one of the best or the most, um, one of the hottest OCs in the country. You just didn't know if Dabo had it in him to, first of all, to fire Brandon Streeter, uh, who is you know, it's been part of his staff for so long and then to go out and, and make that big splash higher. So I do think Phil Longo is a, a good one as well. Um, it's a, it's a radical change. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily assume that you can shift from the system Wisconsin has run for 30 years to Phil Longo's system seamlessly, but he certainly has the credentials. The other thing that's interesting to me on the Longo side is you are leaving behind arguably the most talented quarterback in the country. I would say it's between him and Caleb, but in Drake may and, and to give to, to move on to that, I think is, is a significant thing. Cause I think that's a situation where a lot of people would like, yeah, I like it, but I can't pass up the chance of coaching a Heisman trophy first pick in the draft kind of guy. There's an interesting one that hasn't been resolved yet. I mean, I think Todd Monken has been an absolutely huge uh, factor in Georgia winning back-to-back -back national championships. He is interviewed for the Bucks OC job. If he gets it, I think he's also interviewed for the Ravens OC job as well. 
if he gets it, you know, suddenly the, the, the best program in the country right now has an OC opening to fill. And I'd be really interested to see what direction Kirby goes there. They would end up hiring. I'm going to tell you, and then I want to just look at your face. <laughs> who I think might be the favorite for this job. You ready? Oh, I think I know who you're going to say. Go ahead. Mike Bobo. Bad idea. Oh, not a big bad, bad idea. Bad idea, Kirby. I know he's loved in, in the Georgia, you know, part of the Georgia family. He played with him, right? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't they have played at the same time? Uh, did not go well at Colorado State. Did not go well. When's the last time you, you he did something where you're like, wow, look at that. Mike Bobo. He's so great. Um, Yeah. He was the uh, OC at South Carolina he was in 2020 at- when, when Muschamp got fired. He was the OC at Auburn in 2021 when uh, everybody was already ready to run Harson off. I mean, basically, he was Mark Rick's OC um, as late as 2014. There was there obviously were some really good Georgia teams in there. I mean, he was George, He was on Mark Rick's staff practically the entire time. So, can I use the stew logic on you? Well, what did you just say like seven minutes ago about, well, Nick Saban knows more. You're like, Kirby Smart won two national titles in a row. He clearly has an eye for this. He obviously knows Mike Bobo better than almost anybody. I'm not saying Mike Bobo is definitely the guy, by the way. I um, We don't even know if there's going to be a vacancy. But Well, just- Kirby, Kirby got it right in a big way with Monken, um, Monken, but some of his early, you know, uh, I can't even remember now. Who was the OC before him? Maybe it was it James Coley? No. Was it Thomas Brown? Oh, yeah, it was James Coley. Um, you know, he hasn't always gotten it right. It's kind of what we're getting to, right? Like what I said about uh, Dabo going out and getting uh, Garrett Riley. Like, I think you got to pick the, the best guy you can get for the job. And when you're Georgia, that could be almost anyone versus, well, I know this guy. He played with me, coached here a long time. Let's just move him up. Hey, one other uh, coordinator move while we're talking about it. Um, the big winner actually might be Washington because Ryan Grubb was a really hot name and Alabama was looking close at him before they moved on with Tommy Reese. And Kalen DeBoer was able to keep him. And they obviously kept Michael Penix Jr. And I don't know. I mean, they you look at them like they're a legit playoff contender. And um, I think that's a... That's a win that it didn't, you know, it's a win that you kept him at this point, I think. And that's um, a nod to them. All right, Stu, um, this question from David in Atlanta. Thanks for this in-depth detail on the Jaden Rashada NIL deal. I want to know, why do you think so many football writers like that Andy Staples are so strong in their belief that student-athletes should be employees? We already have pro sports. What do you think? And I'm pretty conflicted on it myself. Um, I, you know, for years and years, I thought they should do NIL. I thought it was ridiculous that a player, you know, could his jersey could be in the bookstore. He couldn't get a dime from it. Like that, to me, was a no-brainer. When you start t- talking about this step, I mean, you're talking about a fundamental change to the whole idea of college sports. And, and with a lot of possible consequences. And I don't even know... I mean, I frankly yet to hear somebody spell out how you could do this and not have it affect things like Title IX. Uh, if they're an employee, do they even really need to be a student? So it, 
I can't speak for Andy. For me, it's not that I desperately want them to be employees. I think it's like the only alternative at this point to this system we have now that allowed the Jaden Rashada thing to happen. Um, it is insane that we have this system where the schools can't make the NIL payments directly. So something like the Gator Collective has stepped in and taken its place. Um, all sorts of third parties are doing this so that the schools can deflect, right, the uh, responsibility that comes with paying them directly. Uh, I think it needs to go in-house. I think the compensation should go straight from the uh, schools to the players. It shouldn't be, well, there's this collective over here and it has the word gator in it, but it's not actually part of Florida and, and we have no control over it. So You're just if there's a way to for that at this point and creating more problems for your trying to cling to the sanctity of amateurism say that again i said what it has done as i interpret how you're saying and i don't disagree is you're basically letting the sport chase its tail or letting college sports chase its tail and twisting itself into knots for clinging to the idea of some version of, and I'm doing the air quotes, amateurism, when it's not. That's right. I think that that ship sailed a long, long time ago. So um, if there was a way to do this without classifying them as employees and, and all the things that come with it, uh, great. I have yet to hear anybody explain how that would work. Uh, it's just, it's really, really complicated. But um, NIL needed to happen to me. It was ethically, uh, what, what am I trying? It was just completely unacceptable, unacceptable ethically that not only, you know, you hear the thing, coaches can make $8 million. The athlete, not only that, but like any other student on the campus could do a sponsored Instagram post or YouTube video or whatnot. Uh, and the, and the app, but except if you play college athletics, so it had to happen. But the way in which it happened, the, the NCA punning on any attempt to to regulate it, um, and certainly that had to do with that Supreme Court decision, uh, has has led to this bizarre environment. We do want to emphasize that the Rashada situation, we thought it was important to tell that story. By no means are we suggesting that that is the norm out there. That was a, a complete outlier. Most NIL deals are exactly what they were intended to be. Um, Bijan Robinson getting his own brand of mustard, offensive lineman getting a deal with a barbecue restaurant. Um, that's that's more par for the course out there. But you know, we know that as long as there's this loophole, uh, people are going to exploit it. They're going to use NIL to recruit players and transfers. And also, every other suggestion, like there should be a salary cap. There should be uh, somebody should determine what the market rate is. None of that's going to withstand legal scrutiny so to me it's like kind of a uh lesser of the two evils is how i would put it now there are other people who think it's you know like a moral out just like i said about nil it's like a moral outrage that they're not employees that they're not paid a salary and that's fine you can you can have that i'm not necessarily on that that board but we got to have something better than this screwed up system we have now all right as always, send your questions to the audible pod at gmail.com and we will see you next time.